This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. I'm your host, Darren Hood, and I'm very happy that you saw fit to take time out of your schedule to join me on today as I spend time talking about various topics as they relate to the world of user experience and the large animal that it is today, whether it's deliverables, whether it's career-oriented information, whether it's trends in the discipline, things of that nature. We're going to talk about all types of things, for those of you new to the podcast today, all types of things that are related to user experience. We're not focusing on one simple thing. Now, currently today, we are addressing a topic we're continuing. This has uh, been several shows now that we've been talking about this, and we're going to continue talking about it for the next few weeks. But the subject we're covering right now is overcoming the mirage of UX ambiguity. By way of quick summary, what this is about, it has to do with the confusion that a lot of people experience, whether it's understanding what UX is, how to define it, the type of work that we do, how to work us into processes how we work with regard to agile. A lot of people do not understand UX. They they know it's trendy. They know it's supposed to be profitable. They know that the return on investment is high. So a lot of people have jumped on the UX bandwagon, but a lot of times when this happens, people don't get educated with regard to UX. And, and that's where the ambiguity stems from. A lot of people have UX They've decorated, as one person said one day, and I love that, so I keep saying it, decorating their companies with UX personnel, but they didn't decorate their companies with UX knowledge, nor did they decorate their companies with a proper UX maturity level. So consequently, wrong definitions come forth, wrong applications come forth, incorrect practices come forth. People don't want to learn things. They don't want to do things the right way. They come up with a hodgepodge or a mishmash of something that remotely looks like user experience. They'll even put user experience in the job posting when they're hiring, as we talked about recently. But none of those things constitute UX. The ROI that IBM and NASA and the Design Management Institute published into the wild some years ago uh, and, and some other companies as recently as a year ago to talk about the ROI. If you invest X amount in, in UX, you're going to get this huge return. And so people, again, they jump on the bandwagon and they they litter their departments, more of a litter than a painting. So they litter their departments with UX people, but they expect to get the return on investment, but they're not practicing UX in many instances. And, and we're going to talk about some things today that, again, explain why This problem exists and I'm indirectly giving everybody some challenges because I'm the one that's out here talking about it right now. And uh, some of you out there, you you know who I am. You've interacted with me either in person or you've interacted with me on LinkedIn and you see some of the things that we say, you see the things that we do. And, and I can't do this alone. And there's a few other people, not a lot. There are a few other people that are, that are in this battle with me and are helping and addressing 
people and trying to educate people and trying to help people, pointing people down the right paths. And and we, all of us, we subject we, we were subjected to a, a great degree of, of, of intellectual violence in the UX community by people who refuse to comply with what UX really is. We didn't define UX. A lot of us who were fighting this battle encountered certain things from a knowledge perspective, learned what UX was, we aligned ourselves with what we learned, and we continued to practice it. And, and that's whether a person is an author or a person who speaks at conferences or whatever it case might be, the people who've been around for a while, there are a lot of us out there that are just trying to stand for what UX is. And and so it's going to take us all. It's going to take a village to, to coin that popular phrase. It's going to take a village if we get up like last week, I talked about how the UX is not UI and people need to stop saying UX UI because of the problem that it creates. Okay. I might not be saying it anymore. And some people who listened to the broadcast thanked me for, for, for mentioning that, for talking about it, but it's not going to happen with three, four or five of us. The concepts that are out there in the wild that don't properly define who we are or what we do if we keep keep buying into them, it's not going to stop. And the, the end result is going to be the wrong people, like what's going on today, the wrong people being hired into positions, the new job titles that really don't define what UX is, but it fits into people's biases, the, this rise of the product designer that we talked about recently. All they are, is, many of them, is, is glorified visual designers, and but then when you look at the job descriptions, as we read on the on, on that episode, you see that they're really looking for somebody to do UX, but they won't let you do UX. So it's a song and a dance. It's 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 a it's a paper position. It's a it's it's not it's not real. So consequently, somebody's going to see that the quote unquote UX people are not being valued or they're, they don't bring value. I should say they don't bring value. And then you're going to start to see the same thing that I saw years ago when the same exact thing happened in the world of instructional design. And now you hardly even see anything about instructional design anymore because a lot of those positions were gutted out of organizations. They were filled with people who didn't do the job and they were they were they were uh, or the positions were filled by people who didn't do the job by people who were hiring for people who didn't understand what instructional designers did. And then in the long run, now you don't hardly see instructional designers anymore. So we're up against the same exact situation, the same exact dilemma that, that was going on years ago. And if we don't take a stand and let people know what UX really is and represent UX properly, we're liable to end up in the same position so there's enough of us out there that are doing it we need to represent it properly that's why we're doing what we're doing right now that's why we're talking about this topic so at any rate let's touch on the the aspect that we want to share with you this week i've already touched on it a little bit but i'm going to be more formal going forward to make sure that i'm communicating properly this week as a subtopic we want to talk about the issue of the grapevine the the corruption, the diseased aspect, the unreliability of the grapevine. Now, you, somebody might be saying, what in the world is a grapevine? Darren, what, what, what is a grapevine and what does that have to do with anything? I took a class uh, years ago in my, in my undergrad, 
And it was one of the most interesting classes I've ever taken in my life. And the course was interpersonal communication. It's interesting when you take a class about something that you think you understand or that you think you see on a regular basis. And then you go through the technical aspects of it. And the understanding that comes out of that is just, it's mind blowing. And the paradigm shift that you go through as an individual, when you take the time to learn about something that you thought you knew is is so enriching and, and it's wonderful. And as I went through this interpersonal communication class, I was shocked to find out I had heard the word grapevine before. I remember an old song about it when I, when I was younger, I heard it through the grapevine. And so you, you hear things like that and you, you don't think that this is really a thing. This is something that we need to concern ourselves with. The grapevine, long story short, is an official form of communication. It actually is. It's not, it's not gossip. It's not something that we can blow off. It is a way that people circulate information. It, it, it's unofficial. It's informal. But it's still a way that people get in the know. People, where did you hear about that? Well, I heard that from so-and-so, and he heard it from so-and-so, and, and they heard it from his three friends, and it just keeps getting passed on from person to person. That's the grapevine. So the grapevine, again, it is an official, though informal, mode of communication. It is a way that people can can become educated. You can actually hear information through the grapevine that can help to build or shape you as an individual and as a professional. The fact that it is informal does not make it that less, uh, how can we say, that less reliable in general of a resource just because of the lack of formality that goes with it. The question is, is the information that you hear in the grapevine trustworthy? See, it's not about the vehicle. It's about what's in the vehicle. That is the issue and part of what I want to address on today. Now, there's a part two to this little introduction that I want to mention. And I want to take have everybody, especially those of us that are older, to go back in time from a financial perspective. Do you remember the day when you didn't have the money that you might have now? And do you remember how your, your appetite or your, your choice of food, what you chose to be the part of your diet, how dependent that was upon your budget or your financial status? And do you remember how when you did not have access to, to the cash that you might have access to today, the things that you settled for, things, some things that you actually may have forgotten about? Oh, man, I used to eat that? Wow, I sure did, didn't I? I mean, I remember, I'll tell a story, and some of you might get a chuckle out of it, and some of you are going to wonder, what in the world are you talking about? But there was a, back in my early career, when I was going through a program that was sponsored by the United States government to learn how to be a word processor. And when I was going through this program, there was, we were given a, a I call it a stipend, but we were given $100 a week while we were in the program, while we were learning and while we were being trained. So my budget was $100 a week 
it was $400 a month, basically. That's what I got to be in the program. And so I had to buy my food. I had to manage my transportation. I had to pick up all of my staple items, my my household items, my toiletries. Everything came out of that $100. So when I didn't have any money, what I ate was it was going to be on the low end of things. And, and yeah, I know I'm telling a, a story here to some of you. Again, you're going to find funny. I would eat uh, um, instant grits and instant pancakes often for breakfast, sometimes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Depends upon whether or not I was going to the program that day or not, but, but definitely instant grits and instant pancakes. And I ate instant pancakes a lot for dinner. And there was this one veal sandwich that, that they used to make a breaded veal sandwich. It was orange and veal isn't orange, but the veal I ate was. And I learned how to live off of that stuff. And I learned how to, to divvy it up so I could make things last. My point is this, as I have sort of a humorous look back into my, uh, into my past and try to paint a picture for some of you. The point that I'm trying to get at is that today, my wife and I easily might go to a steakhouse. We will go and and buy ground bison. I love buffalo meat. Just look at how your your as your finances change, so does your diet. And you begin to buy things that are more fitting because you can afford them. Things that you, if you had the money back then, you would have done it then too. My point though is that that change in appetite based on what we can afford also happens when it comes to the the information that we choose to partake of. So that said, with regard to the grapevine and how information about user experience spreads in the world, whether it's a LinkedIn post, a Facebook post through a group that's focused on UX, whether it's the Interaction Design Foundation, which is a good resource, by the way. Whether it's a Medium article, which I've said this before and I say it again, you got to take Medium articles with a grain of salt because the vast, vast, vast majority of them are extremely detrimental to your health, quote unquote health as a UX professional. There are very few articles that are well written, well written and there are very few, actually there's no articles pretty much that I go through an editorial process before they are distributed for people to partake of. And for that reason, uh, everybody should really be watching their step. The, the grapevine is, is problematic. And a lot of people partake of it because they're at that stage where their emotional currency, their intellectual currency is low. And when our emotional and intellectual currency is on the low end of the spectrum, those are the times that we will eat, figuratively speaking, anything. Just like I was eating my my instant pancakes, my just add water pancakes, and my instant grits, and my and my orange veal is an orange veal sandwiches. I did that because that's what I could afford and I had to eat something. So that's what I did today. When people have that low, 
They don't have anything in their intellectual pockets, at least so you think, because that's a mirage as well. You think that you don't have resources. You do. It is amazing to see what people will tap into when they when their zeal, when the gasoline of your improvement and your maturity as a UX professional, when your gasoline is zeal based, that's also a contributing factor. And those kind of people will eat absolutely anything, any post that comes along on LinkedIn. I see ridiculous statements posted to LinkedIn on a regular basis. And the person who posted it will get a thousand likes, 500 likes, 200 likes. And they said nothing of value, but they'll, people will like it because they've got this low budget intellectually and emotionally. And they've got a low budget when it comes, they, they think that they've got to settle for the just add water pancakes when all it takes is a little bit of patience and some guidance and you're eating steak, no matter where you are or whatever it is. If some people out there, you might not be a meat eater. I think you understand the point that I'm trying to make. Whatever it is that that is a pinnacle meal in your culture for somebody who can control what they choose to eat, then you can parallel it that way. Whatever it work, whatever works for you. That's what will help you understand this point that I'm trying to make. I saw somebody on LinkedIn and they posted something where they said, do you understand what UX is? I'll show you. And they put a an, an illustration where they had a green call to action and a red call to action. And they, they, they changed it from green to red. I believe it was a red to green. I don't remember. And it doesn't really matter because they were both inaccessible, which is what I told them. But people kept coming along saying, oh, this is great. What you did is wonderful. And and people were hiring the person to do UX work when actually the work that the person posted lets you know that they don't know how to do UX work of a truth. But that's not my concern. My concern is that this is what I mean by the grapevine. When you see a post on LinkedIn that is equivalent to the grapevine. When you see an article on Medium, that is equivalent to the grapevine. So this begs the question, how do we overcome a grapevine that does not really provide in totality the ability to support the desire for people to grow? What, what, how do we counter it? What do we do today? Well, folks, you're going to have to do the same thing that many of us did when we came into UX. What are your sources? Build a personalized learning network and, and identify sound resources that you can use to grow your skill, your knowledge, and your acumen with regard to UX. Start saying no. Develop your critical thinking and go and get books. Books are a way better resource than a lot of the things that are out here in the wild. And let these books become your base. Let these books become the main, the main venue by which you can define what and who you are. Learn about the basics of the discipline 
of user experience. Ground yourself in things associated with information architecture, with usability, with heuristics, with the principles of interaction design. Learn about UX research and the different types of research that you can do and what best fits the job, the the initiative that you're working on. Learn all of these best practices and be grounded in them. And the more that you do this, the more that you root and ground yourself, the more likely you will be, the better equipped you will be to identify sources that are not serving your best interest as a blooming professional, as a mature professional. And let's learn to start turning a huge thumbs down to these resources because one of the reasons that these resources thrive is because a bunch of us are opting in. If two people liked what got a thousand likes, things would change. So that's all the time we have for today, folks. So until next time, this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.